Safety, dependability, and power. Chevy Silverado isn't happy unless the work is hard and the day is long. No wonder Silverado is America's number one best-selling retail pickup truck. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and put a Silverado in your toolbox. In the 30s, there are three teams that dominated the league. New York Giants, Green Bay Packers, and the Bears. And nobody could come close to us. It's the WGN Radio Football Podcast. Who knows, maybe we come out running like wing T or something. Right on cue, Justin Fields to the end zone. With your host, the one and only, Kevin Powell. We're rolling and it's go time. Let's talk football. This is episode 16 of the WGN Radio Football Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Powell. A lot packed into this podcast to talk with WGN TV's Mike Lowe. Uh, if you hadn't seen the uh, city of Chicago taking proposals for a possible casino in the city, uh, which could arrive in uh, as soon as four years, but there was a good story in the Crane Chicago business about how that might impact the Bears move to Arlington Heights and kind of get into that with Mike a little bit as well. Um, we also talked to some Bears, previewing the Bears-Steelers Monday Night Football matchup, and then we get into the whole Aaron Rodgers-Packers mess. There's a lot to get to there. So that's uh, everything I cover with Mike Lowe from WGN-TV. And then last week I spoke with Michael O'Brien from the Chicago Sun-Times to preview the first round of the IHSA State Football Playoffs. He joined me again to preview round two. But we'll start off with my conversation with Mike Lowe. Now joining me on the podcast for a second time is Mike Lowe from WGN-TV. Follow him on Twitter at Mike Lowe Reports. Mike, appreciate you uh, you jumping on. We'll get into some some big-time Bears talk, but I, there are some other things I, I do want to get to. But uh, thanks for jumping on. I appreciate it. Of course, anytime. I'm always happy to be on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. That means a lot. Um, I did get great feedback when you were on last. I will say that, Mike. That's that's the honest truth. Um <laughs> Crane Chicago Business had a good piece about uh, details on Chicago casino bidders. There will be a casino coming to Chicago. I think Mayor Lightfoot says 2025 is the target year for that, and they've seen a lot of proposals being floated. Um, one of them is at the McCormick Place. The They call it the Lakeside McCormick, Lakeside Center at McCormick Place, which is east of Lakeshore Drive, and there's one proposal there, but, you know, obviously Churchill and Rivers, a lot of this is all factoring in. If you build a casino, you would like to have an NFL team just north of you at McCormick Place, but but what can you tell us about where Chicago's at with the casino proposals and and how the Bears may factor into all of it? Well, so essentially Chicago had a competition uh, to propose which sites they could possibly bring a casino to and uh they basically narrowed it down to five and the one that really i think for bears fans is most interesting is this idea of putting a casino in mccormick place in the uh the lakeside center which is that uh as you mentioned the easternmost um building in the uh, McCormick Place Center, which is kind of that flat black building. So if that becomes a Rivers Casino and you've got the Bears playing right there and you could have a huge sports book in there, that raises the potential that maybe that could be the thing that could keep the Bears in the city of Chicago. Now, who knows, uh, given that Rivers is also um, looking at the Arlington Heights uh, <laughs> site that, of course, we've discussed as uh, as the Bears have an option to buy that property 
um, where the old Arlington racetrack is. So it, it certainly makes things interesting. But there are a couple of other sites where casinos could be. Um, but for the purposes of the Bears, that's the one that uh, that has people asking questions about, well, maybe this could be the one wrench in in the Arlington Heights plan, and maybe some sort of deal could be worked out that could keep the Bears in the city if you had a casino tied to some sort of hotel complex. Uh, they're talking about, I think it was the uh, Hard Rock um, mm-hmm. proposal that wanted to take the air rights, <laughs> in other words, the rights to the air over the uh, metro tracks there and build a, a huge hotel casino complex there. Um, so there are some interesting ideas out there. Uh, what it means for the Bears remains to be seen, though. It still does feel like it, the momentum is headed to Arlington Heights, a fresh slate for the Chicago Bears. You, you can build a world-class facility and, you know, who knows, more of a sports book there as well, a year-round situation where you don't have to deal with a lot of constrictions that Chicago does offer, but it's, it's, it still feels like Arlington is the eventual landing spot for the Bears. Yeah, and I think that's, if you were to bet on it, <laughs> I think that would be the place you would put your money. Uh, still, that seems to be a little bit down the road. That option to buy the land, uh, the deal won't be finalized until the end of next year. So we're looking at a year from now or possibly early in 2023 um, for the sale to even go through. And then, of course, it would be years after that. Uh, if the Bears do go ahead and buy that land before they can even build a stadium there. Um, but that is where the momentum is headed. It makes so much sense for the business of the Bears to have control of their own facility, to have control of essentially what would be, you know, like a Disneyland for the Bears. You would have hotels, possibly a casino, restaurants, retail, uh, all kinds of entertainment. We even talked about you could put a uh, <laughs> uh, kind of a, little league stadium there for for, for you know peewee uh, football uh where or you know where the state championship could be played for the ihsa all kinds of ideas uh that you could you could incorporate into that massive 326 acre site in arlington heights um but all of these things are down the road but they're coming <laughs> they're coming pretty fast yeah and even if a, a casino isn't enough to somehow keep the bears at soldier field a casino is coming to chicago and it's been talked about for a long time but they're actually taking proposals now again with the target date of opening some sort of casino resort hotel situation somewhere in chicago i think they also looked at the chicago tribune property one of the developers did that uh halstead and in, in chicago um couple other locations as well what are your thoughts i guess just on where we're at chicago for um developing a casino are you are you for it i know some people you know for years have kind of like the chicago need a casino and there's been a lot of talk and debate about it but what are your thoughts on chicago finally building a casino well i think it's been a long time coming i think uh you can rail against the idea of whether or not this is good economic development versus bad economic development. Um, I think anytime you're putting in a casino, you'd rather have, uh, you know, a fortune 500 company paying taxes, or you'd rather have restaurants or some sort of other, you know, other generator of tax revenue, but a casino, they exist. Uh, the legislation is there. I think uh, you're tilting at windmills if you're if you're 
it doesn't matter if you're against it, it's happening, right? So it's, it's something that is going to come to Chicago, and the question is how can we develop it and develop around it in the best possible way? Um, you know, I think one interesting site that they're talking about is, uh, the, the quote unquote 78, uh, that kind of neighborhood that uh, people may remember this was in the news, uh, kind of behind Roosevelt road, um, behind the Sears tower, like as you're right on the river there, they talked about that as being the Amazon neighborhood. If we were able to lure, uh, Amazon second, um, headquarters when that whole derby was going on uh that's an interesting area that that's being talked about i don't think that'd be the best place for a casino given that you're on the river there and you're so close to downtown um but it's happening uh you know there was talk about people just going to the suburbs or going to um indiana or wisconsin who want to be, you know, participating in gaming in some way, why not keep that revenue in the city? And I think that's eventually what's going to happen. And, and we've taken a big step this week with these proposals that have come in from the major casinos. I mean, you're talking about Hard Rock. You're talking about uh, some, of the, some of the other major players in casino, um, in the casino business. Bally's is one of them. Um, they're, they're also talking about the Michael Reese site, which I think is kind of interesting because that's close enough to, uh, soldier field kind of in the near South side, um, that, that, that could factor in as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I personally am not a fan of casinos. I don't, I don't gamble myself, but, uh, but. So you're not, you're not a fan of them just for you personally, or just the idea of, because, look, you can see the proposals, and they all look great, right? Like, wow, that looks awesome. It'll be fun. It's a yeah. casino. But at the end of the day, they're doing it because it's a city desperate for revenue and money, right? I mean, exactly. isn't, that's that's kind of the gist of it. As much as, much as we want to get excited about it, like, why is the city of Chicago finally bending to this? Yeah, exactly. That it, I mean, the answer to all your questions is money, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly why this is happening. And the, uh, you know, whether or not, I, like, when I say I'm I'm not, a big fan of them. I mean, I don't like go to Vegas and gamble. I don't, uh, you know, go to Reno and gamble. Um, it just doesn't seem like a fun activity for me. I do like the free drinks though. <laughs> yeah. If you gamble enough, those will keep coming, Mike. <laughs> the sports books are fun though. I, I, I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll dabble gambling here and there. I'm not like somebody constantly seeking out a casino. If I'm around, I'll do it a little bit, but sports books are great because it's what, you know, you love sports. You got nothing but TVs in front of you and comfortable seating and food. It's great. I, I love the idea of a sports book. And, and there's no doubt that for a vast swath of the sporting public, that makes it so much more interesting. And you get so much more engaged in the entire league of whatever sport you're watching when you've got little bets riding on, mm-hmm. on everything, you know, <laughs> whether it's. You're, I mean, really, from your fantasy team to you can place bets on almost anything, you know, whether the coin flip is going to go a certain way in a certain game or who's going to score more touchdowns or, you know, you can you can place bets that kind of give you skin in the game and in certainly uh, almost any aspect of sports. And that's what I think people react to when they're talking about a sports book and, and just kind of heightening the experience. Yeah, I mean, Thursday Night Football this week was the Colts and the Jets, and it was a horrendous football game. But if you factor in 
somebody maybe having a few bucks on it, it changes it, right? That helps ratings. You know, the leagues are all in on this now, so it does does I guess help in some way, right? Like you can watch a horrible blowout game and somehow find some reason to continue to watch the game. So exactly, yeah, it's where we're at now. Um, I did talk earlier to Michael O'Brien from the Chicago Sun Times because he does a great job covering high school football. So uh, I talked to him last week before the playoffs started. Talked to him uh, today to preview Week Two. Everybody's big on your, your Loyola Ramblers, Mike. They're looking pretty good in eight A. How could you not be? I mean, they've been uh, pretty much dominating all the competition that they've seen, um, including, um, you know, some of the better teams in the Catholic league. Uh, so they played, um, you know, the opening round last week at home. It's a 44 to nothing game against Downers Grove South. Um, I was there. (laughs) It was a beautiful crisp day for football. (laughs) We've got a a pretty good challenge though this week coming up, uh, the Ramblers do, uh, against Naperville central. I actually, it's funny not to relive the glory days here, but I, my senior year at high school, I was a running back on the Loyola team and we, uh, played Naperville central. They were ranked number one, uh, at the time. And my Loyola team was like a six and three team. Um, so we played the number one seed in the uh, Naperville Central, and we went there and beat them. <laughs> so that was a that was a highlight of my senior year. So it's a flashback hoping, for you, flashback Friday for Mike. Yeah, exactly. We're hoping the reverse doesn't happen this time uh, because uh, the Ramblers are, are seem to be on a roll here. But uh, you know, it's really it's one of the best times of the year. And if you're a football fan, like Illinois high school football, is so much fun. Um, you know, it's just it's. I think it's the purest level. And, uh, you know, you you can find really great teams and great games and great rivalries all across the state. I'm a Catholic League guy. That's what I grew up in. And to see so many of the the Catholic League teams doing well, I think – at least the teams that Loyola played, I think they went seven and zero in the playoffs. Um, So I kind of like follow along the same way, like a a person who's a fan of a big 10 team, you know, you kind of want to see the the other big 10 teams do well until you're playing that team. You know, (laughs) Well, I'm kind of hoping for a main South Loyola matchup in the state championship, just because they've had some epic battles over recent years, including in the state championship, but it's, Starting to trend that way. Things didn't go, you know, when I was in high, I don't even know if I said, if we're all going to go back down uh, memory lane here for our high school football playing days, I played my sophomore year, we were in the playoffs, and we played Loyola, and they beat us in overtime, Mike. So I was always a little bitter towards Loyola. <laughs> my Hersey Huskies felt falling. We were good. They, I think Loyola was 5-4 and four that year. We were something like 7-2, and two, and they upset us at home in the first round. And then my Huskies, who started the year 7-0, and oh, uh, lost the final two regular season games and then got bounced in the first round. So it's not as fun for me. But I'll I'll be watching and keep an eye on all these. The uh, let's let's head to the Bears. Let's get some Bears talk in here because Mike is a a huge Bears fan as well. Uh, what do you think of Justin Fields against the 49ers? I think it was his best game. Made some impressive throws. Obviously that 22 yard touchdown run, which I thought at that moment, I'm like, this dude is willing this team to a victory. He does not want to go home with a loss. Um, I, I thought he looked really good. Still, obviously, a lot of holes on this team, though. And that play, didn't it have the feel of this is the moment that yes. Justin Fields fights? Yep. Like, you kind of thought that in the moment. And looking back now with a, a week's perspective, that's we will still remember that run and how he was able to evade defenders in the backfield. And then when he gets going at top speed, 
you're not going to catch him. I think I saw a statistic that he, there have been like a handful of players who have reached a top speed of 20 miles per hour in the NFL. Maybe like two or three players have done it so far this year, and Justin Fields has done it three times already. Um, so he's done it multiple times. I mean, when he gets going in a straight line, he is fantastic. I think he had a terrific game. Um, and that's exactly what Bears fans want to see, right? Like, you want to see him making progress. And you never want to throw away a season, but here we sit at 3-5. and five, And I think you almost have to look at it this way, is if Justin Fields looks good and keeps getting better, and, you know, the last four or five games of the season, you think, wow, we have a franchise quarterback, you got to look at the season as being a victory. Um even if they don't end up in the playoffs. Now, we're not mathematically eliminated at 3-5, and five, but things sure don't look great with the Steelers on Monday night, then the bye, and then you've got the Ravens. So right now we're looking at a four-game losing streak, um, and you don't want to have two seasons in a row where you have a six-game losing streak. So this feels like a game that the Bears have to win. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of weak spots, and I think – after last week's game, you're looking at the defense, which you're like, is this bizarre world? Now we're, now we're talking about the Bears' defense as being the weak spot. Um, but that's that's kind of where we are. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to get excited about Justin Fields for all the obvious reasons. We've never had a franchise quarterback here in Chicago and just his skill set and everything he brings. And then it's just like this I don't know, maybe this is just me being a bit negative here, but it's like the cloud of the pace naggy. Like, what's going to happen after this season? Do the Bears finally find a franchise quarterback, but then the team is kind of left around him in a a complete disaster? I mean, you have an aging defense. you got a lot of money on the books moving forward. I I don't know. To your point, though, like if Justin Fields is playing well and developing, and if you have a franchise quarterback in the NFL, like you're going to win games eventually. That just is going to happen because they're going to make everybody around them better. Exactly. I mean, how many years have we said, well, the Packers don't look great, and then they end up like 13 and 4? Right. (laughs) Because Aaron Rodgers can elevate a team. Now, the hope is that someday Justin Fields gets to that level where he's like a Tom Brady or an Aaron Rodgers and can just almost will the team to victory. Um, obviously, he's not there yet, but, I mean, I like what I see so far, with the exception of, you know, the disaster game in Cleveland. And then, uh, you know, we had uh, – he's obviously had a couple of rough goes, but – that gets back to the question of what happens to Pace and Nagy, and is the Matt Nagy offense really not an offense? Is it just a collection of plays and gadgets? And <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know. I mean, I think there there's a growing body of evidence that says he might not be the right person to handle your uh, most valuable asset in this franchise quarterback. Um, but only George McCaskey can make that decision, and we usually only hear from him at the end of the season. So uh, so we'll just have to see what happens. But like I said, I think if you can look back at this season and say, man, Justin Fields made strides, and Justin Fields looks great you know, by the end of the season, um, you gotta, you got to kind of look at that as a win. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, like how much, how like strong is the, are Nagy and Pace entirely connected, I guess is my question. Because Ryan Pace now, if Fields plays well, 
can go to the McCaskies and say, look what I got you. I got you Justin Fields, right? But then Nagy, you can point to a million different. I mean, the offense has been one of the worst in the NFL. They're moving the ball on the ground. They're running the ball, but their passing attack is near the bottom of the league. Scoring, all all the stats you look at, it's it's just about uh, near the bottom of the league. So I am curious, like, is Pace and Nagy, are they connected as one? How how do the McCaskies view that? Does Ryan Pace buy himself a few more years because he did get that, you know, bright, shiny object that is Justin Fields while Nagy couldn't do much and they didn't trust him? Or do the McCaskies, you know, swipe it clean and bring in a whole new crew? I, I don't know. It's kind of fascinating to think about. Right, and I, I think the only clue we have is that the last time they were all together, they talked about what a great collaboration this is between <laughs> the coach, the GM, and the front office, and so forth. And they use that word collaboration so many times that it almost became a you know a joke uh, to Bears fans that they've collaborated on everything. And here we are with a three and five season that they've collaborated on. Yeah, um, they are. I, I, in my mind, they're connected, right? Uh, I think in most the imagination of most Bears fans, uh, Mad Nagy didn't really get to hire John Fox that he might have been kind of pushed on him by management. So people look at Nagy as like the first true head coach that he hired. Um, but I think they're connected, and I think their fates are intertwined. But, you know, we said the same thing about Trubisky and Pace. Right? Like, yeah. as as Mitch Trubisky goes, so goes Ryan Pace, right? If he, yeah. if he sucks, then Pace is gone. <laughs> well, no, Pace is still standing. And the McCaskies seem to love Ryan Pace. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the um, quotes from George McCaskey, they really love Ryan Pace. Uh, so I don't know, maybe, you know, there's thought that, that maybe even if they go in a different direction for general manager and coach, that somehow Ryan Pace would be given some other role within the franchise, maybe as a president of football operations. And then there's somebody who's actually a general manager or he's kept in the fold in some way as a consultant, um, that they don't want to just dispose of him because they like him as a person. So who knows? But, I don't think that if, yeah, I, it's tough because you want to give them, the impulse is to give them more time to develop Justin Fields, but the, at the same time, you don't want to screw up the development with mm-hmm. incompetent coaching and scheme and and a general manager that's not going to surround him with the right players. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of a catch-22, and like we said, uh, really ownership is the only is the final word on this and we just don't get to talk to them enough or hear from them enough to really know what they're thinking. Yeah. I mean, you get to the point where it's like, okay, and I'm not there yet. It's no slam dunk that Fields is the franchise quarterback, but I feel really good about what I've seen out of Justin Fields. I also feel really good about what I've heard from Justin Fields. He's he's resilient. I mean, think about that Cleveland game handles himself like a star quarterback in the NFL but it's like okay if you do it if he is the guy then the next step is building a good team around him you know it's like that's the idea get a franchise quarterback win a lot of football games go to the playoffs on a year-to-year basis win Super Bowls and it's is it does Pace and Nagy get you to that next level who knows we'll see and that's that's one of the things that's been disturbing about seeing what the regression or the lack of use of a a weapon like Allen Robinson. Yeah. Like how are they not somehow getting these two connected? And you kind of got a clue from Allen Robinson and his comments to the media this week when he said, well, you know, we're still developing a uh, chemistry because we didn't get any reps together 
with Justin running the first team. It's like, that's exactly what every critic was saying over the summer. Like, you've got to get Justin Fields reps with the first team so he develops the chemistry, and here we are with the problem. Now, there's also this discussion of whether or not Justin Fields is uh, recognizing, you know, what open for Allen Robinson is versus what open for a wide receiver at Ohio State would be, you know, where the guy's five steps ahead of the defensive back, um, whereas it's a much tighter window for Allen Robinson, and that's kind of always been the game he plays. But still, that's a huge problem that you're, you've got literally the franchise player. He's the franchise tag player, and he's having one of the least productive years of his career. On the same token, you've got a still developing. I think Cole Komet is good, but it seems like week after week there is at least one or two glaring plays, a dropped pass or some sort of missed opportunity um, that just doesn't look good. And I don't know if that's scheme or if it's the player, but Fields does seem to be unflappable. And if you can get people around him that can rise to that level, um, I think we'll start seeing his development. Instead, you, you use the term resilient. People say he's. I just said unflappable, but the way we talk about him is not really reflected in the statistics, right? Not they're not things you can really measure. They're things you can kind of feel. He's confident. He's resilient. He's tough. You know, that's that's how we talk about him. And I think all that's true. But we got to start seeing it in more than. Um, and, and we did. I think take the first step against uh, um, San Francisco last week where it was in the stat line where you could see his completions. I mean, he had 100 yards on the ground. He was definitely more confident tucking the ball and going. Uh, Who knows if that's a function of having Matt Nagy outside of the building. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that point you brought up about the difference between being open in the NFL compared to college football and things like that. And that, and that might be very true with, with Allen Robinson and, and Fields. Who knows? It's weird, too, because Robinson put up huge numbers in really bad Bears offenses. So I'm not sure why that connection's not there. But to Komet, like, there was a throw last week where Komet, if it was, you know, an average fan, you would have said, that, that guy's completely covered. And Fields threw this perfect kind of back shoulder where it would have had to have been a really good catch by Komet, maybe even a one-handed grab. But even Fields after the game was like, I, I don't know, like I couldn't, I couldn't have done anything more with that throw. And he's not wrong. I mean, it was great coverage on Cole Komet, and Fields put it in a spot where that's yeah, you watch your your number one tight end to make that play in the end zone, you know. So I, I think he he, he can make all the throws, and it is building a. Um, you know, a good roster around him. Last question, Mike, before I let you go. What do you, what do you think of the whole Aaron Rodgers-Packers mess that unfolded this week? I love that it's a mess for the Packers. <laughs> I knew you were going to respond like that. I hope it spirals out of control for them. And who knows, because I do think that there's some level of trust that has been breached. He clearly left the public with the impression that he was vaccinated. The question was, are you vaccinated? And he, if you go back and listen to the audio, the first word out of his mouth is, yeah. Yeah. So he answers in the affirmative, and then he kind of does the, you know... Immunized is the way he he phrased it. it. I I never remember hearing that, being like, who... I'm like, are people saying I'm immunized? Nobody says that. Don't we just say vaccinated or I got the shot? So Right, uh, right. So he, he was playing, he was doing some linguistic gymnastics there, and... You know, it wasn't, nobody really, you know, 
burrowed down there and said, uh, just to clarify, are you actually <laughs> vaccinated? Did you have the Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson? You know, nobody got that follow-up. And I think part of the reason is sometimes when you're covering sports, like those kinds of follow-ups that you might ask a politician or some sort of public figure can be perceived as badgering um, of an athlete. And it's such a touchy subject outside of sports that to bring that level. So I think I, I don't necessarily want to fault the reporters in the room there because it seemed like at the time he answered in the affirmative and um, and then just used kind of a different word to describe it. Um, yeah, you know, yeah Rogers was doing some some politic in there. He sounded like a politician, but you know, like. I think too, like this is all in hindsight. Again, not like nothing against the reporters that were there, but like there was over the past year and a half, there's been a lot of phrases and things and terminology that was not in our everyday life before, you know, March of 2020, you know? So that's what I remember hearing immunized. I'm like, oh, I guess maybe people just say they're immunized. They're not vaccinated. You know what I mean? So it's just been sort of a, he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And he's a, he's a smart guy. And I think he, I mean, he wants to host Jeopardy, right? Like he, he, I think he thinks he's smarter than he is. And I'm, you know, I, I was at the game, the Green Bay game, where he said, you know, I own you. And to me, even that feels different now because you could kind of say, yeah, he does, and he's so great. And now you feel like, oh, God, is he just like a con man? Is he kind of a slime ball? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way I want to think about Aaron Rodgers. Hey. <laughs> um, but, well, it, it is but, interesting but, to see. But like, now there's some evidence. Yeah. You know? like, and and I, I want to know, did his teammates know this? Mm -hmm. The reporting now is that he's furious that somehow the NFL let it slip that he wasn't vaccinated. Um, but if you go back and look, he seems to have violated the protocols that the NFL set out for uh vaccinated versus unvaccinated players he's in press conferences unmasked so if you're not vaccinated you should be wearing a mask and these may seem like little things you know he's he's probably still six feet away from people but these are the protocols and he gave the impression that he was vaccinated even if the packers and the nfl knew he wasn't why didn't either of these organizations hold him to the same standards that they they hold everyone else to and I wonder how many of his teammates actually knew. And, you know, it's not just about him. That's what we always, you know, that's been the refrain in the rest of the reporting on the pandemic, that these measures aren't just about the individual person. It's about the people you're interacting with. And how many of his teammates, you know, might have come into contact with him and then seen a family member who's immunocompromised or, a child that couldn't be vaccinated or whatever. And you start to think about that. And I wonder what kind of reaction this will have in the locker room. Now they're playing a game without him this week and they may have to play two games without him. We'll see. Um, and that could be enough to, to, you know, really derail a season though. They are so far ahead of everybody else in the NFC North right now. That that's probably not going to be an issue, but it's just whether or not it shakes up the Packers in a way that we can't tell right now right. Um, from an internal standpoint. So it'll be fascinating to watch. It will. It will, for sure. Bears are at uh, Pittsburgh Monday night, and you can watch the game on WGN TV, correct? Although the game is being broadcast by, or cablecast by, 
uh, ESPN. You can watch it locally on Chicago's very own Channel 9. Love it. <laughs> so I have to, how, have does to get that, that how does that come about, by the way, like when a local channel will, will carry it? So uh, the NFL is one of the, I think it's probably the only major sports league in North America that makes sure that all of its games, at least to the home markets, are on broadcast television as well as cable if they're on cable. So when the Monday night franchise was taken off of ABC and shifted over to ESPN, that put a prime game, right, only on cable. So to the markets involved, in this case it would be Pittsburgh and Chicago, they also show it on broadcast television, typically because uh, ESPN and ABC are under the Disney umbrella. The game would just automatically go to the ABC station. But I think the issue now is that they've got their fall programming and they don't want to like mm. preempt Dancing with the Stars or whatever it is that's on. So then it, then it goes out to be bid to other local stations. And, of course, WGN being an independent uh, station, we don't have network programming that we have to contend with. It's basically everything is ours. Um, so we bid for it, and uh, we got it. And I think it's great because it, it brings back... And this has happened, actually, a couple times over the last several years. Um, I think there was a game against Washington and a game against Minnesota on Monday night that were on uh, Channel 9. Um, but it's really kind of an interesting little inside baseball broadcasting um, of how this happens, where why is the game on Channel 9? Right. You know? right. Obviously, most of the games you see are on Fox 32, uh, a handful are on CBS, uh, Channel 2 are on... Uh, channel five with the nbc game and then you get this weird monday night game that has to be on a broadcast station so people who don't have cable can still see their beloved bears i love um, it i'll be watching on good old number nine that's for sure yeah absolutely oh <laughs> uh, and we're even running promos with tom skilling say it's going to be a hundred percent i think his quote is it's a hundred percent chance of a butt kicking <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing so, so I think uh, I, I think the Bears have to win. The keys to me are going to be: can we get our ground game going? And I, I don't know if David Montgomery is actually going to play. We know he came off of the injured reserve list. He is a beast when he's out there, or he had been. But Khalil Herbert has been absolutely terrific uh, in relief, um, and he played his way, as far as I'm concerned, into the second oh, yeah. uh, spot ahead of uh, Damian Williams. Um, and if we can establish that and eat clock and, you know, we're going to get Khalil Mack back, hopefully the defense can put in a performance that's at least some semblance of what they used to be. But, you know, the, the thing is, I, I'm sorry, I was going to, now I'm just going off on tangents, but the key matchup to me is going to be our offensive line, the Bears' offensive line, against uh, a pretty ferocious defensive front, the headline by J.J. Watt. Um, uh or, excuse me, which which Watt is it? It's, uh, it is, um, is it T.J. Watt? T.J. Watt? T.J. Watt, T.J. Yeah. Watt. Sorry, J.J. Watt is... Uh, yes. is T- he's with the Cardinals. T.J. Watt's the, uh, right. the Steelers' edge rusher. They, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a good front seven. It's typically what you always can assume out of a Pittsburgh Steelers defense, right? Yeah, so, like, will Larry Bourne step up to the challenge? Uh, you know, he played fairly well last week. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, all, you know, the Bears are line can hold its own. They played well in, in the running game, and can you protect Justin Fields enough to get him 
uh, just enough time to make some of these really great throws that we've seen. And I think if that can happen, Pittsburgh is not the Pittsburgh of the last several years, right? They're a four and three team. I think they've won something like three or four straight. Um, but they've lost to teams that the Bears have beaten. I think they lost to Cincinnati. They lost to Vegas. So, you know, I, I don't think this is a team that's going to come in, you know, and, and just beat the lights, you know, <laughs> like it's not going to be a mismatch. I think it'll be a close game, and uh, the Bears need it. Let's just put it that way. They, so. they, they do need it. Mike, I, uh, good luck to Loyola. Hopefully the Bears can pull one out in Pittsburgh. I appreciate all your great insight. Uh, thanks for jumping on the podcast again. Again, you can follow Mike on Twitter, Matt, Mike Lowe Reports, and, of course, see all his reporting on WGN-TV, where you can watch the Bears beat the Steelers Monday night on good old Channel 9. Thanks so much. Uh, anytime you need me, you know where to find me. Go Bears. <laughs> go Bears. There right, we go from Mike to Michael. Here's my conversation with Michael O'Brien from the Chicago Sun-Times previewing the second round of the IHSA State Football Playoffs. Now joining me on the podcast for the second uh, straight week from the Chicago Sun-Times, it's Michael O'Brien. He covers high school sports and does an excellent job. And we're on to week two of the playoffs, Michael. Um, I guess for, before we move on to, to Friday night's games and this weekend's games, any major takeaways from the opening week? Uh, I guess we can start with 8A. It looked like mostly chalk for the, for the most part, but anything stand out to you in 8A last week? You know, no, not especially. South Elgin won. They were an undefeated team that really no one knew anything about <laughs> at all. They have no kind of big football history. Their conference isn't very good. So they're one of those teams that got a high seed because they were unbeaten and we didn't really know about. So them getting a win was interesting. Um, they kind of, you know, did what they were supposed to do. They're going to face Marist <laughs> at Marist on a Saturday. So that's going to be a, a huge kind of jump in class for them. We'll see how they do with that. But I thought that was a little interesting. Uh, the other biggest takeaway from the week, especially for Chicagoans, was that CPS didn't do real well. I mean, that wasn't a surprise, really. Only three of the 24 teams that played won. Um, Clark is in a smaller class. They're still around. And Morgan Park and Phillips are still around. So there's only three CPS teams left. Can you give a refresher for anybody wondering why a team like Met wouldn't be having home field advantage for the entire playoffs? Because they're at Naperville Central Saturday at 1 o'clock, correct? Yes. Um, the way it works is in the first round, the higher seed gets to host. In the second round the team that hasn't hosted yet gets to host. So if a lower seed pulls off an upset, you know, in, in the first round, they're going to get to host in the second round. Now, if, you know, both favorites advance, the higher seed will get it since they both hosted in the first round. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the way it goes throughout. Um, a lot of people don't like it. Some people do. I think it, in, a, in a way what it does is it kind of accounts for the actually knows that their seeds aren't perfect because it's just based on record. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, this kind of throws a little kind of foible in there that way. You know, Mount Carmel probably should have been a higher seed than they were, but because they played a tough schedule, you know, they were, I don't know what they were, 12 or whatever they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to they're gonna get a home game this week against Batavia, you know, who was the one seed and undefeated. So I think that does make up a little bit for the seeding problems is that Mount Carmel, they might have been seeded lower than Batavia because they had a tougher schedule, but because they won the first round, they're going to get to host tonight. Are we going to get another epic Loyola Maine South State Championship matchup 
Is is that the sense you're getting? I know it's just through the, the first round, but Maine South Maine South won big over New Trier. Uh, well, Met or uh, Loyola has been rolling. Is are you getting that sense that we could see these two powerhouses meet again in uh, in DeKalb Thanksgiving weekend? You know that that's what I predicted um, at this when the brackets came out. That was not my predictions weren't great <laughs> in a lot of classes, uh, especially seven eight. But um, yeah, that that's what I've thought kind of since I saw Maine South go up to Gurnee and, and beat that mighty Warren team ten to two. You know, uh, on their home turf, I thought. That made them the best team down in the second half of this 8A bracket. You know, Iniqua Valley is gonna, would be a tough quarterfinal matchup for them um, if they can get by Palatine, which I think they will. I watched Palatine over the weekend struggle a bit at Taft. And so that's not going to be easy. You know, and then there could be Marist or Hinsdale Central waiting in the semis. But, I, but in my mind, Maine South is the best, is the favorite to, to be there against Loyola. Uh, you mentioned Glenbrook South when we talked last week about maybe a team not on everybody's radar not exactly a powerhouse football school but they they won they won yeah. 34-6 in the first round what, what can you say about Glenbrook South they got a matchup with Hinsdale Central on Saturday yeah you know I think they've got a shot you know the West Suburban schools did not you know Hinsdale Central and, and Glenbrook West both won but they York didn't you know Lions didn't the conference isn't looking quite as strong as usual on it so I think maybe Glenbrook South is going to be able to give Hinsdale Central a game that should be a tough one. It's interesting because you know, Hinsdale Central is such a powerhouse, and they don't have a big star this year, but they're at home, and that's a program that knows how to win playoff games. So Hinsdale Central is the favorite, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Glenbrook South make that a close one, and it would be a, a really big deal uh, for that school if they could go to Hinsdale Central and get a, a football playoff win. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And Warren was another school we kind of talked about, a good defense. They won 27-9, to matchup with Glenbard North on a Saturday. What are you seeing there? Who do you like in that one? Boy, I think that's one of the best games. Um, if it wasn't at 6 o'clock, I'd be heading to that one. I can't quite make it. I'm going to the Loyola-Naperville Central game at 1, so I had to pick a 7 o'clock start. But Glenbard North, I think the Duquesne looks like it's been really good this season. That's Glenbard North Conference with Batavia you know, and, and Wheaton North and Wheaton, Wheaton Warrenville South. Mm-hmm. But Glenbard North has lost some tight games, but they barely lost. They lost, they lost in the last play twice this season. You know, they'd be an 8-1 and one team. They're hosting this game. You know, I think they've got a really good chance to shock everybody and beat Warren. I know a lot of people think Warren is going to be in that semifinal against Loyola, but that's going to be a really tight game. I think Glenbard North is a lot more battle-tested than Warren, although Warren has, you know, a tremendous defense and a running back headed to the SEC, so <laughs> they're not too shabby. All right, well, let's get to 7A. Uh, selfishly, I'll begin with my Hersey Huskies, who were upset. I know you had high hopes for them as well, making a deep run. Um, for me, it stings. I was, you know, I was streaming it. I was pulling for them. They started seven and zero, and then two tough losses in the regular season. And then, man, Jacobs kind of was just continued to move the ball. They they wiped out Hersey at Hersey, forty eight twenty. That was I was not anticipating that. Um, uh, it stung for me, Mike, a little bit. Yeah, you know, I was um, I was at Taft Saturday afternoon. They, they were hosting Palatine, which I mentioned before, and mm-hmm. uh, the Daily Herald reporter Dick Quagliano was out there. He watches the MSL. You know, every week, and he told me before the game even started, he's like, "Man, Hersey has a lot of trouble stopping the run. <laughs> They're a good team, but that Jacobs is a bad matchup for them in the first round." And boy, did he, boy was he proven right with yeah. that one. Uh, Jacobs kind of rolled over them, and and I got to say, after watching, I saw two mid suburban league teams last weekend: Rolling Meadows and Palatine, and 
Yeah, uh, I think the Urban League might have been down yeah. a little bit this year, and I didn't get out. It's one of those problems you don't get out to see, you know, any team in a conference for a season. You just really don't know what you're dealing with. So, yeah, I think the Midsummer Urban League might be a little, little find things a little rough from here on out. Yeah, you know, I, 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 this is why I admire the work that you do and what high school reporters do. I mean, if, if you know, for sports guys like me, if I'm talking about the NFL or the NBA, like we have a million resources and there's endless information. I don't know how you guys do it and have this great of a grasp that you do on high school sports. It's not like every game's on TV. It's not like you can watch highlights of every game. It's not like we have all this information like we it, is, how do you do it? Like, what's your what's your routine about a week by week? Is it talking to coaches, talking to other reporters? What what's the routine for you guys? Because you guys all do such a great job. It's rough, you know, especially <laughs> since all the re- even the few resources we have have been taken away from us slowly over the last decade. You know, we used to have NBC for Chicago did the High School Lights show, yeah, where you could at least you know watch some highlights. You know, you can't take everything from that, but you can at least see something. Um, that was gone <laughs> this year. It seems like the pandemic killed that. Um, all the papers have cut that coverage massively. You know, the Tribune does literally nothing. The mm-hmm. suburban papers do some stuff, and you have uh, Friday Night Drive. At Shaw does a nice job. So I read everything, everything physically possible I read, um, which tells you a little bit. I talk to a lot of the reporters. Um, coaches are very especially in football, it's tough. <laughs> they don't. I mean, they kind of watch their team and their conference, but getting kind of an, an objective opinion from a coach, actually, I find they can really lead you down the wrong path. Yeah. <laughs> so I really stay away with it. It's, I stay away from that. Uh, There's football me. coaches for you at every level, right? They never want to give you too much yeah. on anything. We, <laughs> we hear it from Hallis Hall every every single week, Michael. Um, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's but, but you know, like I was really happy to have you back on the podcast because I got great feedback. Like, there's clearly, uh, you know, a hunger for high school football coverage. So, um, yeah, we even used to do a high school football show on WGN Radio Friday nights, but uh, with some programming changes yeah, and stuff, yeah. we we weren't able to continue that. But all right, let's get back to um, the seven eight bracket. Now, you did mention the mid suburban league. We do have a prospect BG matchup, and for someone who grew up in the Northwest Burbs, there was a stretch there where when, like, Zibikowski was at BG and Prospect was winning state titles and Hersey had a couple powerhouse teams. I mean, from what I remember, this was already probably, what, 15, almost 20 years ago. That that was a stretch there, a two-, three-year stretch where BG, Prospect, and Hersey may have been three of the best teams in the entire state, maybe three of the best. And I remember some epic playoff battles. They were bringing in extra seats for those games. Um and, and I know they're expecting a big crowd at BG Saturday between Prospect uh, and Buffalo Grove. Who do you like in that one? Uh, definitely Prospect, but I think it's—I mean, I shouldn't even say—I think it's kind of a toss-up. Buffalo Grove is at home. This league has just—you can't predict it week to week <laughs> this year. It's been—you know—Prospect and Friend and some of the kind of traditional powers have taken their lumps <laughs> a bit more. Buffalo Grove. I don't really know anybody that kind of saw their season coming. You know, that's been tough with the the COVID year. Everything's been really unpredictable. You know, it's just been it's been tough. And Buffalo Grove's one of those teams that kind of snuck up and surprised everybody. So who knows? You know, you got a home field advantage, a team you know well. You know, I, I think and that's going to be a lot of fun. That, that's one of the best things about the Mid Suburban League is how competitive it is. You know, there's not a lot of blowouts. You know, kind of anybody can win a game, and, and you don't see that all over the area. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, one other team that did get rolled in the first round was Rolling Meadows out of the mid-suburban against St. Rita. You had mentioned Caleb Brown, Ohio State commit, um, has missed 
every game since week one, but he was suited up last week. If I, I think I saw you tweet about that. But is, is he going to be yeah. playing? Is he going to make a return this postseason? they got to match up with Geneva uh, Friday night. Well, he was going to play You know, last night or Friday night. I'm out there. I went out there only to see. It wasn't going to be the best game I read against Roy Meadows, but I wanted to see Caleb Brown. He only played one series in the first game <laughs> and got hurt against Mount Carmel. I was there. So I was dying to see him play. You know, I'm walking in and I see the athletic director and I'm like, is he guy here? He's going to play. Is he going to play? And he looked at me and he said, sparingly. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get a look at him at least. That's fine. So there I am standing in the rain. <laughs> it's cold. It's windy. It's rainy. I just want to see Caleb Brown. And St. Rita just starts smacking Rolling Meadows around. They scored two touchdowns like in the first four minutes. And it was obvious that no one in the right mind would bring Caleb Brown into this game. It was twenty-one to nothing still in the first quarter, and so he didn't. He was suited up and ready to go. But what's the point, you know, in risking him mm-hmm. in that kind of weather when you're already blowing this team out? Uh, so after the game, Todd Kuska, the uh, St. Rita coach, you know, he confirmed that he could have played. You know, they would have used him if they needed him. Word is he is going to play this week against Geneva. However. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the same situation. Yeah, um, it, it's po- it's possible they could get up. Geneva's running back who's had a really good year is out for the game. That's not good for them. And they've had a really surprisingly nice season. Geneva's a program that seems to have all the ingredients of a possible powerhouse, but just hasn't been very good recently. But they, they've kind of turned it around under a new coach. Um, but so who knows? Maybe they will need him. It'd be nice. It'd be really good if Caleb Brown could get out there. And you know, it's the type of thing where. You imagine even Ohio State, you don't want the first time you get tackled, you know, in a game after a major injury to be in college football. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you think you want to, you know, get some snaps in high school. You look at the bracket, St. Rita, if they get past Geneva and, and Brown returns, like they've got a they've got a path here to get to the state championship. Yeah, no doubt. You know, they were my preseason number one and things really didn't go well for them after the Caleb Brown injury. But this is a team I think a lot of people forget how experienced they are. Almost every team out there, the kids haven't played a single playoff game because we haven't had playoffs in so long. Mm-hmm. St. Rita's got a quarterback, uh, Tommy Ulatowski, who played in a state championship game. You know, two years ago, he was a sophomore. You know, they got a few, I think three or four, if you count Caleb Brown sophomores, have actually played in a state title game, and that's a huge advantage. You know, in this kind of year when we've got whole varsity teams that have never seen a playoff game, you know, until last week. So I think Rita definitely has the experience. Problem is, their second string running back who came over from Phillips is also hurt. Um, so they had two sophomores running the ball against Roy Meadows. They did really well, but I, I think that the kid's going to be back uh, next week. So I think Rita's looking at a lot of injuries. If they can get everybody back, it's guys the limit for sure. And uh, you, you briefly mentioned Batavia, Mount Carmel. I think a lot of people think that could be the game of the, of the weekend. Who's your pick there? Who are you liking? Yeah, that is going to be. I'm really excited about that. And all these Duquesne against. Um, you know, Chicago Catholic League is great. That's where I will be. Mount Carmel, I'm sure a lot of people haven't been there. It's only like the third year I think it's been open. Mount Carmel squeezed a little stadium in <laughs> behind their school, and it is just a hornet's nest. It is a tough place to play. I think mean, it has to be one of the most intimidating venues in the whole area just because of its It's really steep where the stands are, so it feels like everybody's coming at you. <laughs> There's no free room. You know, Mount Carmel's so good. I think Mount Carmel has to be favored against anybody there. Loyola barely escaped, you know, with a win. It was the one in the last play, you know, there. So I think that makes – I think Batavia might be 
a slightly better team, but I think the home field advantage gives Mount Carmel the edge there for sure. I've never been, but I've seen plenty of pictures. It looks awesome. It's kind of wedged in between two of the school facility, like buildings, right? If if I'm thinking of it correctly, isn't it sort of well, wedged? It, it's it's just a street on the other side. Um, gotcha. Which is kind of neat because there's like houses and apartment buildings there. Right. So it's like has almost a Wrigley Field feel when you watch from that side. That's awesome. You know, you can just see kind of the city behind it. Yeah, they did a an awesome job on that. It's going to be tough, and and, I, and everybody else better worry because this Mount Carmel team was, is very young and inexperienced, and we thought they'd have a little bit more trouble this season than they did. You know, the more experience they get next year, they're just going to be a real juggernaut. All right, and before I let you go, anything 6A, 5A, again, no disrespect to the lower 4As, but people listening to this are probably more interested in, in the 8, 7, 6, and 5As. But uh, 6A, 5A, what are you looking at uh, this weekend? 6A is a really fun game. I'm going to be um, at St. Ignatius on Saturday night. They host Creed Moni. Creed Moni is a really talented team. I think everybody... Um, Trayvon Rudolph graduate had a huge, you know, game um, the other day. The, when he turns out, you know, great college and NFL players. They've had a nice year. They're seven and three. They're at St. Ignatius. It's going to be a huge test for this kind of revitalized Catholic League program to see if St. Ignatius, who just got their first playoff win last week, you know, can can kind of pull the, this game off. Um, Kerry Grove is the heavy favorite in six A. Um, they should kind of. Well, I'm sorry, in our area, East St. Louis is in the other bracket. They're the best team in the state. So 6A is fun just because of East St. Louis. you got the St. Ignatius story. 5A, it's weird. Um, (laughs) Fenwick became the favorite, you know, because everybody else kind of moved out of that class based on size. Um, They're going to be at Rockford Boylan. That's the big game in the public league. Kankakee, undefeated, but kind of untested. They played, frankly, a really bad schedule. Their conference just isn't good. They're 10-0. But they're going to be at Morgan Park at Gately on Saturday. That should be a really fun game. Lots, lots of athletes in that one, and a de- decent chance for the CPS to stay alive. All right. Uh, any other final thoughts? Maybe anything I missed uh, before I let you go, Michael? You do such a great job covering uh, high school football and sports. But um, any other thoughts? Any storylines this weekend we should be watching? Um, you know, taking a look through, I think there's an, a team that we haven't talked about enough. I, I think most of us, and sometimes doesn't cover them, way up in Wakanda. They're 10-0. and um, They got a nice win last week. It's a really good story, a program up there to, to come through with an undefeated season and then win that first round, like South Elgin. You know, these teams on the outskirts put together good seasons. They don't get a lot of attention. Wakanda's 10-0. and They're going to host Prairie Ridge. They're a you know, traditional power from the Fox Valley. So keep an eye on Wakanda and South Elgin and see how these you know, undefeated teams from way up north uh, pull things out this week. All right, great stuff. Michael, follow uh, him, Michael, on Twitter at Michael S. O'Brien. Read his stuff at uh, chicagosuntimes.com. Great high school coverage. Michael, I appreciate it. We'll talk to you uh, next week when we get on to uh, week three of the playoffs. Sounds good. Should be a fun weekend. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks to Brian Altimer and Ernie Scanton for their help producing the podcast. Appreciate you listening. Thanks to Michael O'Brien from the Chicago Sun-Times and to Mike Lowe of WGN-TV joining me off more Bears-Steelers podcast content uh, coming up. Thanks again for listening.